So welcome. You're coming in a really interesting Sunday because we are wrapping up something that we have been walking through for 13 months. So we, uh, as we often do, we, we go on these long journeys uh, through Scripture. We walk the, the mountains and the valleys, and we hit these high points and these difficult places, and, and we, uh, we go through these journeys kind of not knowing when they're going to end. We started Ephesians a year ago with kind of a plan in place. Uh, we've adjusted that plan about 100 times, and we found ourselves here. Um, and standing on sort of the, the precipice of whatever's next, I love to stop and look back and say, where have we come from? So for 45 individual kind of messages and 13 months, we have been looking at one letter, a letter that could be most literally read in 30 minutes or less, right? A letter that was meant to be sent to a church that was struggling, that was divided, that was broken. A letter that was meant to be about identity, who we are in Christ, and the unity of drawing us together. And a letter that ultimately was about the grace of Christ that is for all of us and what it means to be the church in a world that is really broken. So as we get to the end of this thing, I start thinking, like, where have we been? And so what I like to do is I like to just stop before we begin something new and say, where have we come from? Because it's an important value there to look back and say, hey, where have we been? And so what I thought we'd do is we'd take two weeks, because I was going to do it in one, and then, of course, that's impossible. So we're going to do two weeks with six, six things that we have learned from this book that I think are going to be the most important takeaways that we have. And I'm just calling it, these two weeks, just calling it Lessons from Ephesus, Right? And the idea is, what is it that we're supposed to walk away with as individual followers of Christ and as a church? That's kind of the heartbeat and the goal of what this is about. Now, you can find summaries of the book of Ephesians and all that stuff, and none of the scholars are going to agree with me on what those things are. But they're not here. So we're going to go with what I think. And what I think uh, this morning are some things that I think are buried in the text that I want you and I want me to be able to sow into our lives as followers of Christ and as the church. And so we're going to look at three this week, and then three next time we'll explore those, and then we'll be moving on to, uh, to other things. So that being said, we're going to be hopping around the text a little bit. So if you're one of those people that kind of needs to know where we're going, we're going to be in Ephesians 1, 2, and 4. We're going to be talking about these lessons as we're going to move to the text that they sort of uh, kind of, uh, kind of apply to, and we'll just kind of begin from there. But we're going to start off in Ephesians 1. So if you are kind of here for the first time, you're catching us on a great Sunday because you're going to get an overview or a kind of a big picture look of some really important things in this letter uh, that sort of took us 13 months to figure out. And so uh, these, are, these are the highlights. Um, and we're going to start with lesson one. And lesson one is this. It is the absolute priority, number one thing in the Christian life, is to know him better. So I want you to grab your Bible. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to look at two verses, um, and then we're going to keep kind of move through a little bit. But let's start there, and let's pray. Lord, what a privilege to uh, gather in this place and worship with the body, people from all different walks of life and all different places, all different seasons. Some of us are here for the very first time. Some of us have been in the church for as long as this one's been around and maybe even been in the church since we were born. Um, we're here from different places. We're also here for different reasons. Some of us were drug here, didn't really want to be here. Some of us are here because we don't know how to not be here when the doors are open. Some of us are here because we're hurting. Some of us are just here because we want to hear the word and all kinds of different reasons. Maybe we were invited. But the truth is, all of those reasons are, are important. And you meet us individually in the middle of whatever those things are. You just show up in the middle of our lives because you are God. And your desire is to reveal yourself to us. And so as you sit here this morning, I just want you to take a few minutes and just say, God, I just want to learn. Just teach my heart. 
Not from what Trev is saying or any of those kind of things, but from your word. Like, teach me from your word. So just sit here this morning and ask the Lord to teach your heart something this morning. Say, Lord, teach me. Just whisper that sort of in the recesses of your mind and of your soul. and Just say, Lord, teach me. Take a moment and pray for somebody else. We do this every Sunday morning. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. As I mentioned each week, everything that unfolds here on, uh, on a Sunday morning is just not about you. Uh, be someone that cares about the people around them, wants to see them grow spiritually, even if you don't know them. Love the body of Christ that much. Pray for someone. Pray for your husband or your wife or that guy in the red shirt or whatever. Blue shirt, white shirt, I'm trying to single anybody out. Just pray for the people around you this morning. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's really hard to survey a book like this and go, hey, what should we learn when every verse drips with like, either deep and powerful and important theology or incredible sort of practical realism for the Christian life. But I thought we'd start at the beginning and just kind of go, what is it that we need to glean and walk away with and that would be most fundamental for us as individual followers of Christ and as a church? And so I just kept coming back to this idea of the entire letter is really about this concept that Paul wants the church to know Jesus. If he can get anything through their heads, he just wants them to know him better. And so the first lesson is actually not something that, that Paul overtly says is like, do this or have this or don't do that. It's kind of buried in a little place. It's a little under lesson that I think is incredibly important. And that is this, that the priority of our life should be to know him better. Everything above work, above family, above life, everything in our world should be moving towards knowing Christ better. So listen to where this comes from in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. He's basically setting the church in Ephesus up, telling them how much he cares about them, right? If you remember, chapter 1 is sort of this setup for who they are in Christ, and he actually tells them how much he loves them. And this is what he says in 115. He says, um, he says this, he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So he's looking at the church and he says, I love you. Because if you track back to the first part of the chapter one, he basically tells them how much he cares about them. And he says, I love you so deeply and I am so grateful for you from the moment that I heard that as a, as a people that you have given your lives to Jesus Christ, that you are following him, that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I have been overjoyed and I have not stopped praying for you. Paul loved church. He loved the saints. And we use the word saints here, right? We're talking about not holy people. We're talking about redeemed people, right? We went through all of that before. The idea of saints in scripture is not morally pious, perfect people. It's people that have been redeemed by God and have been set apart for a holy purpose. And he loves the church and the church is made up of saints and he loves the people of God. And he says, I've been so grateful and overwhelmed for you that I've been praying for you. But I've been praying something very specific. 
And this is where I find things to get really interesting. Because here's the deal. Life as a first century saint was hard. I mean hard. They faced things that you and I will never face. Now, I'm not saying your life isn't hard. Life is hard. I mean, life is, is a beating, and I don't want to take away from the difficulties that maybe you're walking in or have walked through or are dealing with or what it happens in your, your world. I'm not taking away from that, but I want to tell you that life in the first century was different kind of hard. It was hard because you woke up to the reality every day that today might be the day that the Romans come in and they seize my family and they kill them and they torture me for believing in Jesus. Today might be the day that my entire family ostracizes me, pushes me out, alienates us, and says we're not welcome back to any family events because we have denounced our Jewish background or the fact that there is this Christ that the rest of my family does not any longer believe in or no longer believes in. That every day as a first century Christian was an isolated, lonely experience. These are not Christian cities. These are point half of a percent, if that, of a gathered group of believers in the middle of a city that doesn't not only have believers, but doesn't like them, wants to rid them, the cities of them, believes they're a scourge. There was famine. There was no electricity. You lived in a mud hut, right? Life was hard. Not to mention if you didn't have a husband or a son in your life, life was really hard. They faced things that you and I can't even fathom, right? There's no grocery store. There's none of these things that make life accessible and easy. That's just normal. And then you couple all the pressures of following Jesus on top of it, and it's really hard. And you know what Paul prays for the church? He doesn't say this. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you will make life easy for them. I pray, Lord, that you would give them what they need, that you would give them food and shelter, and that you would take care of them, and then you would let them have great days. He doesn't seem to ask for that at all. And Chapter 1. In fact, he might at some point in time, but right here in chapter 1, he doesn't. He doesn't ask for their life to be easy or for them not to be murdered or killed or martyred. He doesn't ask that the Romans wouldn't come riding in and string up their children. He doesn't ask anything about that. He just simply says, I have not stopped praying for you, and I have not stopped praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So of all the things that Paul, the apostle, could pray for the church for, right, Comfort, safety, ease, whatever it is. He prays for none of those things. He instead says, I pray that what you will get is God's spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? Why is that so significant? Well, there are things that we can't come across on our own. These are things that are only given by God. Only God reveals himself to us. We don't discover God. He's not the end of some mental journey that we make. God is holy and accessible unless he reveals himself. He is that holy and that mighty. And so therefore Paul is praying that God would reveal himself in his fullness to the church. That they would see him. They would experience him. Why? He says it right there at the end. That you may know him better. So of all the things that Paul could pray for, have a great day. Life would be better. We could have an abundance of food, no famine, no death, no martyrdom, no people dying, that Christianity would be on the rise, that we would get a Christian leader, a president, or whatever it would be in those days. That we would take over the city and there would be multiplication, and revival, and all these things. He doesn't pray for one of them. What he prays for instead is that they might know him better. Even in facing death even in facing difficulty and famine and heartache and hardship, Paul values the idea of knowing Jesus more. 
It started me thinking about my own life, right? Man, life is hard. My life is hard. Your life is hard. It is. It just is. You don't know how to do any of these things. The manual they give you is not functional, right? It does not work. And it certainly doesn't work in all circumstances. And the book they hand you when, they, when you have children is fully broken. Fully broken. And the one they hand you when you get married is even worse. And those things make no sense. Looks like it does, right? Just do this, do that. Everybody out there is doing it. It doesn't work in your home. Never does. You've got to navigate your own way. The financial ends never, ever actually add up. There is always something more. It always feels like there's another shoe that is going to fall. Death is real. Our bodies are weak. We're just totally in the process of slowly dying. I mean, that is real. Life's hard. It's beautiful, but it's hard. And when you give me the choice of opting for a life that wants God's spirit of revelation and of wisdom or a life of relief, I will tell you standing up here every single time I would take the spirit of God's wisdom and revelation and I will be lying to you. I want relief. I want life to be easier. I want things to be better. I want the people around me to be happy. I want to enjoy a life that is full of less pressure. That is the absolute human part of me and it is very real. We feel like the idea of God's spirit of revelation and knowing him better would win in a landslide because it does on paper, but in the reality, we want relief. We want God to come in and take something and fix it and make it no more. We want it to be gone. We want this thing to be over. We don't want to deal with that pressure anymore. We want him to come in and fix our marriage, fix our finances, fix our children, fix our heart, fix our life, fix our work. Just make it better. But as Paul shows right here, he's not necessarily in the game of making things better. God is in the game of allowing us to know him more, which is infinitely more valuable. That the entire priority and goal of the Christian life should be to know Christ more, not to get out of difficulty. And for the first century Christian, it might have been, hey, I may face death. But in the process, if I get to know Jesus, I'll take it. Man, that betrays my life because that's not my heartbeat. I want it to be, but it's not. And if I look at Ephesians and I could say, what is one thing that I should long for? It should simply be in whatever circumstance, no matter how difficult, no matter how the struggle, Lord, show me how to know you in this moment. What are you doing? How can I see you? How can I follow you? How can I trust you? What are you developing and maturing in me? How am I growing in my maturity of faith, believing and trusting you instead of just wanting out like a toddler? Because a lot of my life is spent wanting out like a toddler. Make this stop. Make it quit. End it. With no interest in growing or going deeper, having a spirit of wisdom, revelation, or just knowing God more. I'm so interested in being done with something that's hard and not in the process of knowing God in the middle of it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't want out of difficult situations. That's fine. But we don't want to miss growing in maturity in Christ in the process. God is always interested in the journey and never interested in the result. Where we discover along the way who we are and who God is and what he's doing, that's where God lives and dwells. He dwells and lives in the process of the journey and not in the end. If God were just about getting from point A to point B, then yeah, pray for, hey, take this away, get rid of that. I don't want to walk through this. But all through Scripture, God is about the walk. It's about the road. 
It's about the hills and the valleys and the mountains and the things that you face along the way and the discovery of who he is and the trusting of him and the developing a relationship. It's the refiner's fire, right? Lesson number one from the book of Ephesians, if we could walk away with anything, would be this. Make the priority of your life to know him better. That's it. That's it. Not to get promoted, right? Not to get out of this or take this or make this much money or have a deep 401k or to get to a place where you have no more pressures. You don't have to worry about those things. You have all the money saved for your kid's college. Like Those are not the end goal. Those are fine things to aspire to only in the wake of, God, I want to know you better. Priority number one, I want to know you better. Paul loved the church so much that he wanted them just to know Jesus. That's it. That's it. Fascinating. All right, so lesson number one, right? Know him better. Number two is sort of the entire movement of uh, chapter two. And remember, Ephesians is a setup in these two kind of parallel universes. It's this one universe, which is this deeply theological, which is establishing who the church is, right? And then the second universe is the deeply practical, which is how do we live out that theology in practice? That's how we can go from sort of the deep understanding of who we are, our brokenness and our need for Christ, to the how we live that out through marriage and life and sexuality and all those kind of things that we talked about at the end of the letter. But chapter 2 is really all about establishing one thing, and that is this. You have been saved by grace alone. So there's one message that you will hear continually from this stage or from this kind of upfront area over and over and over again throughout every letter, throughout every word, throughout every drop, because it is just pasted through Scripture, is that you are saved by grace alone, meaning you did nothing to earn it and you did nothing to deserve it. The idea of grace, by definition, is this. God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. So what that means is that God has given you favor and you didn't deserve it. And God has given you love and you didn't earn it. That's what grace is. So if you want an easy definition of grace, God's undeserved favor and his unmerited love. You didn't deserve it and you didn't earn it. Yet God gives it to you anyway. That is grace. Chapter 2 is all about this grace. And he says that you are saved not by anything that you possibly think you could ever do. And this is what he says in chapter 2. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. He says this. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship. So this is basically what he's telling the church. Now you've got to remember, right, the church, this church is coming from a background that isn't and hasn't been raised in Sunday school. They didn't have Bibles in their homes. They didn't have a grandma that hung great little phrases on the refrigerator and reminded you of all these things growing up. None of these people really had Christian parents. These are first-generation believers. And it's a crazy mix of complications. It is Jewish believers who were fully Jewish, yet fully had given their lives to Christ. And then there were these Gentile believers. They didn't have an ounce of religious, religious kind of Judaism in their bodies. They believed in multiple gods or multiple things, and they're all thrust together. And for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, God had established law that says these two groups could not only not worship together, they couldn't be together, they couldn't intermarry, they couldn't mix life at all. And then when Christ died, and he separates the barrier between heaven and earth. He breaks down the divide between Jew and Gentile. And they are thrust into this one new family. And they're trying to figure out how to navigate that life. 
And this is what Paul says. Paul says, I don't care who you are or where you're from. You did nothing to earn God's love. Now, most of us nod our head at this and we say, yeah, that's, that's true. I believe that. But we don't actually live like we believe it. We perform for God. It's what we do. Because we perform for everybody else. Everything in our life is a performance, right? We perform for our bosses. We want to get credit for things. We want to do a good job. We want the applause of people to say, hey, you're a really hard worker. You're great. We perform for our spouses. Have you ever tried to do something for your spouse that they didn't acknowledge? What do you do? You drag your feet. You hang your head. You get frustrated they didn't notice it. You drop hints. You slam doors. Have you ever unloaded the dishwasher really loudly so that someone can hear you unload it? I never have banging it around. My wife and I have this goal to see who can stack the last piece of trash until it falls over and it falls over. It's your job. She's a master at it. We do everything for recognition. We perform. We, most of us were raised that way. We long for dad or mom's affection. And so if we just do this, they'll give it to us. It's so easy to see how we transfer that over to who God is. If God knows that I'm just trying I'm giving it my best effort. If God just knows that, then he will, he will appreciate it and he will love me. Or he'll look past my sin. And so we begin a lot of our prayers with, Lord, you know I'm doing the best I can. As if that's some kind of qualifier. The truth is, is that we are saved for one reason and one reason only. And that is because God gave us what we didn't deserve and loved us and we are totally unlovable. I don't care who you are or what you're doing. You cannot get closer to who God is. You can't earn it. It's important that you know that. And it's important that we know that because salvation is something that we have to die to. Most literally, we just die to ourselves and say, I can't do it. I can't perfect my life enough for who God is. And so how do we receive salvation? He says it right there. Salvation is received by faith. Basically, what that means is that I just trust who God is. I'll never really amount to it. I'll never make it. I'll never quite do it all right. But if I just die to myself and trust who God is, and this gift that he's given me, this unmerited love, this undeserved favor is fully mine. Most of us are exhausted in our Christian life because we're running on a spiritual treadmill that goes nowhere. What I mean by that is that we are trying and we are trying and we are trying and we're going and making no ground. We're just running because we're putting all of our effort into a goal that is unattainable. And God wants us just to stop and receive what he's given to us, right? Receive what he's given to us and just be saved. It's important because salvation is received by grace alone. Listen to what else he goes on to say. He says it's a gift, right? It's a gift of God, not by works, so that you can't brag about it. So a gift, right, by its very nature is given by the giver, and therefore it can't be really added upon, right? So if somebody gives you something, you can't add to it and say, now it's the perfect gift. That part's not the gift. God's gift needs no additions. God gave you salvation through grace alone, and it's a full gift. And that gift is fully free, but it's costly. You may remember this from way back when, a half year ago or so, we talked about this. God's gift of salvation through grace alone is free, but it is costly. Not that it costs us something to attain, but it costs us our life to walk in it. 
right? So you may remember I talked a lot about this a couple of months ago or many months ago, but, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer kind of made this idea um, famous. He's a 19th century pastor and theologian. He made this kind of idea famous through a book he wrote called The Cost of Discipleship, where he kind of talks about costly versus cheap grace in that book. And the idea of costly grace is this. Grace is costly, not because it costs us something to attain it. It's given to us freely. But because it costs us our life on the other side. Meaning that what follows salvation is where we're called to give ourselves. What follows salvation is the call to discipleship. The call to death to self. To put to death the things in our life that we know are sinful. The things that God is rooting out. Those parts of us that we know are broken and falling apart that God says, I want you to be holy and totally different because I have redeemed you and saved you. You aren't getting any closer to salvation. You've been saved. But as a result, your obedience follows because you have been saved. And that grace is costly. means it cost me my desire to pursue myself. It cost me my desire to pursue what I want and where I go and what I think is best for me. Instead, I get to say, Jesus, I want what you want, not what I want. And what it costs me is it costs me my own identity. When exchange for what God has for me is so much better. Grace is costly in the fact that it calls us to come and die. A Christian life that does not call you to death to self is just religion and it's worthless. It's worthless. The reality of Christianity is that grace is freely given and it bids a man to come and die. Die to yourself. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's love. He's freely given it to you. And once you recognize that and fully accept that, then it puts your life in this place of motion saying, do I want to know that God more? Do I want to rid myself and my life of those things that are holding me back from knowing him? Those selfish desires, the, the behaviors that I have that I know are poisonous, the words and the language that come out of my mouth, the things that are, that are greedy in its nature, all those things we've talked about all these weeks. Does God saving me drive me to a place where I want to know him more and walk with him and experience him? And that is costly. It's costly because Jesus turns the entire world's paradigm upside down, doesn't he? What the world tells you we should be in pursuit of, Jesus says, doesn't matter. The world tells us we need certain things. Jesus says, don't. The world says, save. Jesus says, give away. The world says, be first. Fight for yourself. Jesus says, be last. Everything that Jesus does turns the world's paradigms upside down, and that is costly. It's costly. It's costly to be selfless, to learn to die to you, to care more about somebody else than you do yourself, to care more about being obedient to the Father than you do about your own recognition of self. Salvation is by grace alone. And that grace alone leads us to a life of discipleship. And this is what he's telling the church. He's saying, church, it's, it's nothing you can do. And this is, gonna, this is breaking the brains of the Jewish people. Their entire existence was about what we do for God. Everything was a sacrificial system of making sure that we did the right steps or we were running headlong into the wrath of God. And God said, that was the way. It is no longer. Jesus has taken the full wrath of God. He has bore the punishment for all of humanity and therefore this gift of salvation is free for you. Stop working. Receive it. And now that you've received it, live wholly different. 
So lesson one, right? This idea of, in all of its sort of simplicity, the priority of my life should be to know him better. Lesson two, salvation is by grace alone. Stop trying, right? Stop trying. And then three, the last one we'll wrap up with today is this. And probably one of the central themes in the book of Ephesians is this. There is only one. There's only one. Chapter four is this move to the practical. We move out of the sort of theological depth and into how do we begin to live this out. And chapter four begins to talk about this idea of unity. And unity is challenging, right, as I just mentioned, because the entire redemptive story of what God is doing and what, he is, what Paul has laid out of Ephesians is essentially what I just mentioned, right? That God has redeemed both the Gentile and the Jew, both all of this creation, those that have been called as part of God's chosen family and those that are now or were outside of that have been now gathered together in Christ, and Ephesians 3 talks about the idea that they've been made into one new household, one new family. God has redeemed the Jew and the Gentile, bought them to the price of the life of Christ, and formed them into one new family, the household of God. And in chapter 4, he begins to go even a little deeper into that. Chapter 3 and 4 also, he goes a little deeper, and he actually takes that, that narrative about the, the household of God, and he changes it to this idea of a body. He says that you are not only just in the family of God, part of God's household, but you are now part of one singular body. And it's the first time that Paul really uses that metaphor, this idea of the body of which Christ is the head. And the people, right, the organisms make up the other parts of this body, the arms and the legs and the organs and all these kind of things that they all have equal value and equal part under which Christ leads and again, easy for us to comprehend a brutal metaphor for those in the first century. The Jews, they didn't get along with the Gentiles. They didn't even like them. They didn't believe for centuries, and rightly so, that they could even worship with them. There was a dividing wall in the temple called the Gentile wall that they could not pass or they would be killed. And now God has thrust them into one family and told them, not only are you part of the family, but you have equal value, that you are a part of the body, and the body can't survive without its parts. And this is what he says in chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. He says this. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is in all, through all, and over all. There is only one. What Paul's establishing the church is a ground rule here that is vital for us to understand. And he talks about the idea of there being only one. And there's only one of a lot of things. But the first thing he says is there's only one church. There is one church. We call it the invisible church. It's a church that spans space and time. And that church has one singular thing in common, and it's this one faith, this idea that we are brought together by a common belief that Jesus Christ is God's Son, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead, and that those who put their faith and trust in Him are saved. That is the entry point to the one church. There are not multiple churches. Now, we have created that with our denominational structures and system, and we have created divisions where God had no divisions. Denominations are a result of human sinful fall. That is true. We take what God makes perfect and we destroy it. It's our nature. That's what we've done. But if you actually read Scripture, there is one church. Now, of course, 
church is broken and flawed and a huge mess, and we have all different beliefs and theologies and about everything from what do you do with baptism to are you allowed to dance, right? It's all there. And we pass judgment on every one of these churches. We're really good at it. In fact, most of you are here. I'd say 95% of you are here because you pass judgment on another place. You just didn't like it. It's too big, too small, too hot, too cold. Not enough this, not enough that. Just true. Here's the problem. Jesus and the church are inseparable. There's this common idea going around, and been going around for a few decades now, that I can love Jesus and hate the church. It's actually a terrible theological idea. You can't actually. If you read Ephesians chapter 3 and 4, you'll understand that the church and Jesus are inseparable. In fact, he tells us the church, the body, is not only the place that he dwells and where his spirit is, but it's his family of which we are a part. Therefore, to hate the church is to actually hate the body and hate the family of God and that where his spirit dwells. To hate the church is essentially to hate Christ. It's a beautiful sounding thing for those that want to sound somewhat piously religious, you know, hand-holding with Jesus yet shunning the worldly side of things. But the problem is, Jesus very much attaches himself to the worldly side of people to create the church. And I don't know why he did. This is how he chose as an instrument to show the entire world his grace was through a bunch of fools like you and I. I mean, we're the worst. We are the worst because we're here because most places we went didn't fit with us. It's just true. If you've left two or more churches in two or more years, the church probably isn't the problem. You are. And guess what? We're all now here. We're broken. We're flawed. Our expectations are too high. Our expectations are too low, right? We've been jaded. We've been hurt. We're hurt hers. The church is made up of these things. It's made up of broken and flawed people that have been hurt, that have hurt other people, that are judgers, that have been judged. Every single one of them. You will never find one particular church in this city or around the world that is perfect. They're all broken. They all spend too much money on the wrong things or their kids' curriculum is bad or they buy organic coffee instead of Folgers. Like, whatever. It's always something, right? Here's the deal. For whatever crazy, ridiculous reason, Jesus loves the church. Loves it. Loves that complex group of broken people. Wants to use them. It's his chosen instrument to tell the world about who he is. I mean, think about all the ways the God of the universe could show the world who he is. He could write it on the sky. He could align the stars to spell out the words, you are wrong, I am right. You will die soon. Right? He could do anything he wanted. But he chooses ridiculous morons like me to stand up here and say, this is the truth about who God is. And I'm the chief of all morons. Like I'm the leader. Yet this is what he does. It's all ridiculous, right, if you really think about it. How can we possibly say, I love Christ and I hate the church? We've got to fall in love with the church because there's only one. And you know what? The one up the street, whichever one you're thinking of, or down the street or across, yeah, they're broken. They certainly are. And so are we. Get over our desire to judge those and just worry about how we walk following Christ. There's one church. There's also one way and one faith. He says that clearly in there, right? There is one faith, one baptism. The idea is simply this. There aren't multiple faiths in the Christian world. 
We've created names and denominations, but they're really only one faith. And that faith is really simple. That if you profess faith in Jesus Christ as God's son, that you believe that he died on the cross and rose again, that you will be saved. End of story. There is not much more complexity to salvation than that. There is one singular faith and there is one way. There are not multiple ways to God. I know that culture will tell you there are. Culture will tell you that all roads lead to heaven, that there's a ton of different ways to get there. I know that culture will tell you that all you have to do is love and love people and not hurt other people and there's something good that waits for you. Culture will tell you that all these different world religions lead to the same place. That kind of pluralism is a lie and it is deceitful and don't believe it. As much as I long for those things to necessarily be true, Scripture tells us that they aren't. Scripture tells us clearly that there is one faith and one way. And that way is through the person of Jesus Christ. End of story. Now here's the deal. None of us want to say that out loud because we're labeled by culture as intolerant. But you're not making this up. This isn't your message. You're not the one who's proclaiming things that God has already proclaimed from the beginning of time. That he is the one true God. John 17 says that this is salvation. That they believe in you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is it. That is the expression of what it means to be saved. I'm not saying that so that we can put down every other world religion. It's not about that at all. The idea is simply this. Don't walk a road that leads to death. There is one way. There is one church. And then finally at the very end here says there is one God, right, who is overall and in all and through all. The world believes Christians are intolerant. It'll call you a bigot. It'll call you intolerant. It'll call you all kinds of things. It's not really about tolerance, though. It's about the idea of deciding if we're going to believe that the word of God is true. And it holds the key for all people to have eternal life. It's not an exclusive club. The club is open to every single person, every Jew and every Gentile. It's what makes Christianity so beautiful. All of its cards are always on the table. If you've ever been kind of approached by somebody else from another religion, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or some of these other places, none of the cards are always on the table. You have to get past certain gatekeepers to get certain information later on. Christianity, everything's laid on the floor. And it's really simple. It's not actually complex. It's, you're utterly and totally sinful and dead. And God who loves you created you and made you, sent his son Jesus, that if you believe and trust in him, a gift that is given to you, not that you earn or work for, salvation is by grace alone, you will be saved. That's it. All the cards are on the table. There is one God. And that's why the Romans hated Christians. They didn't hate Christians because they believed in a God. They hated Christians because they believed in one God. And the emperor, well, he believed he was one also. And therefore, that's the problem the Romans had with the believers. It's the problem the world has with Christians today. Because they equate the belief in one true God as intolerance. The truth is, is that it's not. I'm open to anybody and anything. You can do whatever you want to. But I believe that Scripture teaches that there is one way and one God. That's it. You're welcome to it. We are getting progressively and progressively farther away from some of these things 
in our Western culture, farther away from the belief in one true God and one church and one faith, farther and farther away from the belief that there is one word of God, one scripture, one authority. We will supplement this and everything else in our life with anything we can to make ourselves feel better and to be more tolerant. The goal of Christianity is not tolerance. The goal of Christianity is victory over death. Salvation and eternal life that begins today and the promise that leads to eternity. That is the singular goal. The goal is not to create a close-knit community of fun people that have a great time in a difficult world. The goal is to keep you from dying. Most literally keep you from dying. That's why Christ died. He loves you and he loves his creation. And so he gave them a way out of their own sin. Everything that we do as a church should be geared towards helping people find the one way, period. Lesson one, right? The entire person and purpose and goal and priority of your life should be just to know him better. Above everything else, above every goal and desire you have at work and everything you want to be at home and who you think you want to be as a mom or a dad or all those aspirations are great. They're not wrong, but they're not the first priority. The first priority should always just be, Jesus, how do I know you? How do I know you better? Before you, I start begging you to take things away from me, like show me where you are in this. Help me grow stronger. Instead of just wanting to relieve our pressure, help my wife and I understand how we can build a stronger marriage to this difficult time. Like whatever it is. Salvation is by grace alone. Stop working for God's appreciation and love and applause. It's not going to happen. You don't need it. He's given you everything already. Just sit in it. Quit trying so hard. Give your life fully to Christ and then allow that salvation to cost you something significant. Die to yourself. It's not about you. Say, God, I want to follow where you lead. I don't want to try and control everything in my life. I want to give it all over to you. I don't want to control those things. I want to surrender to you. I want to die to me. What's better for you, for other people? Like, what can I do to lose my life? That's costly discipleship, all right? And then finally, I'm not going to be swayed by the world's lies that there are a whole lot of different ways. There's only one way. There's one church which Christ loves. And so I'm going to drop my judgment at the door and I'm going to start being a lover of people, right? There's one way to eternity. I'm not trying to be intolerant. I'm just saying what Scripture says because I have a high authority of what Scripture says, which is the Bible is true and real. There's not a bunch of other ways. And there's one God. And that one God loves his creation so much that he sent his son to give life to us to the fullest. And this table is that incredible picture. What we celebrate in communion is this one God, one life, one faith, one baptism. It's a picture of what we have as the church that actually unites us together across all space and time. The Christian church celebrates this meal together. This is one of the great gifts that Christ gave the church. Because no matter where you go, this is the unifying truth, that this is the body and blood of Jesus. This is his. You didn't earn it. You didn't do it. He laid it down. Fully laid it down. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that every single person that he had led and he had taught and he had spent all these time with, all of his disciples, they all took off. They abandoned him. On that same night, as he gathered with them after they had taken the Passover, he took the bread and he took the cup and he gave them this incredible promise. 
But he gave thanks and he took this loaf of bread and he looked at him and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread, <laughs> oh guys, y'all are going to kill me. Bread in this cup, um, and proclaim Christ's death. So here's the deal. This is what you get with our church. So Tim and Julie are out of town. They take care of communal time. I, king of the mor- morons, right, had to go buy the, the uh, bread and juice. This is fully made garlic bread <laughs> with butter and some kind of, it's like a sandwich. This is why I should be in charge of nothing. So the whole time I'm breaking this, I'm like, that slid open easy. Doesn't matter. At this point in time, it's pure symbolic. He took this bread and this cup, said, this is my body. It's broken for you, right? This is my blood poured out for you. This is the body and the blood of Jesus. We take communion on Sunday morning by means of intinction, which means we take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, eat them together. We come down to two different stations, right? But this is the picture of Christ's incredible and unbelievable love for us. So as we prepare to take this meal together and share in these things, I invite our elders to come forward. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so grateful that you take people like me and you do things that are remarkable. I don't get it. I mean, I can't even buy bread. And yet you are so, so, so good. Lord, I thank you that this is the incredible picture that you gave us as believers, that you have poured out your love and your goodness for us, God, that you have given us this tool that unites us all as believers through faith and space and time, that we share this meal no matter where we're from or what we do. You draw us into this place. So I pray that we would take this time and we examine our hearts as Paul tells us to do. We don't take this lightly. This isn't a time to examine our soul and our heart and just say, Lord, where do I need to repent? What do I need to confess? What do I need to let go of? And Lord, we just, we release that all to you. God, you are so good. And even in the middle of our sort of failures and disasters, you draw us into yourself and you give us every single thing that we need in Christ. So Lord, as we celebrate this meal together, remind us of that first lesson, which is everything in life should be to know you better. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. Amen. As our worship team leads us to worship, I encourage you to come forward. Either one of these stations is great. We have gluten-free Jesus here. And this is actually real bread, not sandwich bread. So we're good here. I nailed this one. One out of two ain't bad. But let's celebrate this meal together.
privilege and the joy of what it means to be part of a community, a flawed, broken community in which we are redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord, the world will try and tell us a bunch of lies, but the truth is, is that you are the reason. You are the only reason. And Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful that your desire is for us to know you better, know you more. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified today in what we do in our worship through your word, but that we would experience you and know you, love you, only because you have given us the ability to do so. For Lord, you are the King eternal. You are redeemer. You are hope. You are the reason we gather and the reason that we draw breath. And so Lord, we ask that you would be exalted and lifted up. And what we learn from the book of Ephesians is simply this. You love us. You have given us everything that we need in Christ. And we are fully yours. So we stand here and close our time in worship this morning. Make that the cry of our heart. That we love you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, Lord, be glorified.
So as we walk out of this place, those lessons become who we are and who we're called to be because they're lessons for the church, right? That, that we might just desire to know him better. That we might trust and believe that we've been saved by grace alone and by nothing else that we can do, period. It's a free gift. And that gift, though free, is costly. That I would lay down my life and say yes to Jesus. And finally, that there is only one. And it is broken and it is flawed. And there's one church. And that is the instrument which God is using to tell the world about his incredible goodness. And in that one, there is one way and one faith and one God who has redeemed and rescued us all. Together, this is what we tell the world. It's who we are as the church. Next week or next time we're together, we'll do the next three. They're equally as important and valuable. But these are the lessons that we're learning from Ephesus.